Welcome to the International Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Ken Mink. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. We are here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're revisiting the topic from our first episode, the culture of DevOps, and what makes DevOps, well, DevOps. We would like to thank 42 Lines for sponsoring this episode. 42 Lines is a DevOps consulting firm specializing in observability, cloud migrations, service reliability engineering, cost control, security practices, and team mentoring. Jumpstart your SRE journey today with the experts at 42lines.net. So just under five years ago, we started this podcast, and the opening episode was talking about kind of the culture that surrounded DevOps, and that one of the trendy questions at the time was, what is DevOps? What does DevOps mean to you? And we opened this show talking about our take on that. And and the interview questions that we had, because, you know, we had to have the same vision of DevOps that the people we were interviewing with, except they didn't even know what DevOps was. I think there's a lot of places that still don't know what DevOps was is, <laughs> even though they use the term in their hiring and call their teams that. Well, that, that really stands out to me, because one of the things that we had mentioned five years ago was... That if you have a, a job description that is DevOps, it probably isn't because it's a culture thing and not a, a job title. But the world has moved on from that point. Um, I still see would, that as a red flag. I still see that in, in, in practice today that certain teams have uh, DevOps positions or certain organizations have a DevOps team. And I'm like, hmm, let's think about this. But it's become increasingly common and almost standard practice it seems in the industry to have a quote-unquote devops team that does devopsy things for you know deving the ops and it's kind of cringy yes as you can imagine yes we're using Although, terraform it's devops because we have to write code to make things happen yeah i was just about to say i i i think nowadays when you see a job posting that's devops it really means hey we're in the cloud and we use terraform or something like that Terraform and Jenkins, that's all you need. <laughs> we talked about uh, the world of, of operations, the world of software development, really colliding and both sides needing each other's skills to be successful and to be able to push forward in today's environment. And without that DevOps blending of skills, um, it'd be really difficult to find a job five years later. Well, conveniently, it's five years later. Um, most of us still have jobs, right? Last um, I checked, I did. <laughs> Last well, I'm I checked. technically unemployed at the moment, but that's only for another couple of days. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that was a really sort of interesting way to look forward um, to where we are today as far as, as software engineering and the job skills that we do in our day-to-day -day basis and you know what we're seeing uh, in today's market. Yeah, and the... The number of resumes that I see or the number of people asking for help that I see who are looking to pivot from traditional Windows or Unix systems administration where they don't really have an experience, you don't, don't have experience with automation or with um, basic things like Puppet at this point. Puppet is now almost deprecated effectively for the kind of work we're doing, unfortunately. The the number of posts that are they're asking why they can't get the new trendy jobs, those posts are starting to disappear from Reddit. They're, those posts are starting to fade out from what I can see because I think that community is realizing that, yeah, you have to be on this 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 
you have to be on this train in order to get the job. And there was a while that it wasn't very clear to the rest of the industry, but it's now become kind of table stakes. We we, we keep on talking about table stakes on this podcast and in this field, but if you don't have that basic mindset, you're not going to be doing the interesting work. What? I even noticed, I mean, I'm subscribed to several like different networking subreddits on Reddit and the question still pops up fairly often. Like, do I need to learn programming for this to, to be able to be a, an effective network engineer? And basically everyone's like, yes, you at least need to probably know Python and with the ever increasing uh, software defined networking and things like that, you're going to need to understand other concepts beyond just networking to be an effective network engineer. And I think the, the same approach uh, applies to being an operations engineer as well. Well, I think it's also that having a NOC or having a network operations center used to be a really important thing, especially when you had a data center team and you had a group of folks running the networking hardware in the data center. You remember when but, we impressed people by taking them into the NOC? But now <laughs> the the networking team isn't running switches. The networking team is setting up VPCs and direct connects and building interconnects between different cloud providers or between the data centers and the cloud providers. And they're working with the, with the engineers or the de- developers writing the code to say, no, you're flooding the network with connections on this, that, or the other. And I can demonstrate with, you know, packet traces or, or what have you. And let's dig into your code and figure out why you're retrying badly or why this other thing is going on. And so they have to have, just like the operations folks have to have at least a basic understanding of the code that developers are running. The networking folks have the same requirement, and it's it's only increasing. I mean, simply put, we have to charge, uh, or network providers charge for bandwidth down these pipes. So if you can't uh, figure out how to break down the silos and work together across networking and operations and development, uh, you're not going to overcome some of those scalability problems. I think not only knowing specific languages or whatever, but having some of that mindset to be able to deal with developers, having done it before and, and, or, you know, learning some software skill set gives you much more of an ability to talk intelligently with the people you're effectively your customers of working with them and getting out of them what their problems are and, and relaying back to them what you find if you can speak a common language. And I think that's also a big factor in, in the whole DevOps is being a developer or having a developer's mindset or an experience allows you to interface with the developers themselves much more effectively. I've also found in the last five years that the developers I work with are, especially ones who are primarily developers and haven't moved into some kind of blended position, understand a lot more now about at least the the practicalities and the, and the reasonabilities about deploying software in controlled and reliable fashions, either in an automatic way or in a human powered way, a human release gate, but they're understanding the idea and the reason you want to have unique and distinguishable artifacts that go out the door that you can document and you can tag and you can version, you can metric. So you can measure if the code fix actually worked and if you can understand how to cleanly, you know, roll forward and roll back various pieces of code. And this is becoming more widespread, which is also really helpful to kind of the, I used the word confluence five years ago. I, I did not mean the wiki software, but to the, the confluence of these, these two fields, where as we're, we're knitting our professional skill sets and we're more over, more, there's more and more overlap than there has been in the past. Um, I'm seeing it in practice a lot more. 
and I I directly attribute two things to that one Docker and two cloud the the cloud infrastructure because that has enabled developers to be able to set up their own infrastructure and have to answer some of those questions that normally they didn't have to answer. How do I make sure I have the the latest image running or what do how do I know what version of my app is running on this Docker container or this instance and uh, while Amazon or the other cloud providers would love to sell you on the idea that developers don't need uh, operations people, that they can just deploy their apps to this managed instance and everything will be happy, it has at least educated them on some of the problems that we solve on a daily basis. And I think that's what has helped influence that the the, the masses in terms of how to better program in a, uh, I guess, in a containered world. 100% agree. Um also with things like Minikube, so you can run a stripped down Kubernetes interface on your laptop. It's giving developers the ability to see what does it look like when I roll the pod forward? How do the health checks actually work? You know, did I expose the port correctly? And it's, it's simple things like that, that kind of get rid of a whole class of, you know, level zero or level one problems. And then we can move into, okay, now what is actually going on here? Not that Kubernetes is the solution to everything. I think there's one thing also that's kind of popped up more in popularity since the first episode, and that is uh, SRE, the the field of being an, a, a site reliability engineer. Um, and I, I think we've touched on that, or some of the philosophies of SRE, we touched on that early on, and in our episode, it's just we just didn't really have a name for it, or I don't, I don't, I'm sure the name was around, but it just wasn't as popular as it is today. Yeah, Brendan uh, told a story in the first episode about uh, how Brendan and I sort of encountered DevOps and that terminology uh, for the first time and realizing that we had had adopted some of those practices and mentalities uh, really 10 years earlier. And we were in a shop that had been the benefit of following those practices for, for longer than both he and I were employed there. And that was a really awesome place to be in a lot of different ways. Um, but as I sort of look back at the last five years and forward into this movement that is site reliability engineering, I really see that even though site reliability engineering has only been a, a popularized term since uh, 2017, 2018, uh, when Google's books came out, uh, this podcast has really been sort of pushing that barrier, that boundary of SRE practices um, in in this field, um, and especially with our sort of uh, focus on observability and telemetry uh, as one of the foundational concepts of what SRE is. So open question. But I admit, I was pissed off when I first learned about SRE, because one of the first things you see is SRE is how a software, en- uh, a software engineer would design an operations team. And... I always thought that rubbed me because I never considered myself a software engineer, even though I have a computer science degree. And in the last several years, I've really realized that, yeah, we are, in fact, all software engineers. We have different stripes and different strengths, but we are all software engineers together. So open question for the three of you. What is the difference, if any, between DevOps and SRE? Are you looking for like what our definition of it is or what like, okay. Yeah. Cause 
Yeah, like you, Jared, to you personally, if you were had to, to tell somebody, when do you use the label DevOps? When do you use the label site reliability engineering? How do you answer that question? Mm. I've I think always that, looked. Uh, go ahead. <laughs> I've always looked at SRE being as almost a superset of DevOps. It's a lot more of the feedback loops, the observability, the measurability, and structure applied on top of what your average place would look at as DevOps. And it just, uh, it's always, in my mind, just been a superset of it. That it, it's, it's part of, DevOps is part of SRE, but SRE also puts a lot of other stuff more procedurally, more structured, more measured, and, and just layers on top of what we would think of as DevOps. As much as, yes, I can't stand the term either. Um, <laughs> I agree with that because you've got to implement the DevOps strike because we we were a big thing for us was it was more about the mindset of developers and operations working together and that's really what SRE is about. It's about site reliability engineers who are working hand in hand with developers to make the site more reliable and uh, they're implementing DevOps strategies. So I would agree 100 percent that SRE is a, a superset of of DevOps. So to me, the problem with DevOps historically has been it's it's so ill-defined. Um, looking back about how we talk about DevOps and train each other for DevOps, I see that, that DevOps really focuses on some of the cultural aspects of building teams together, um, about choosing how we communicate with some standard communication practices, which has really awesome benefits like allowing remote work, work from home, which I know we're all taking advantage of in this era of COVID-19. Um, but those cultural social practices really help us work communication and break down those barriers in between teams. But what DevOps hasn't done is it really hasn't solidified the how we do that, the practices that we employ as Operations people moving forward with the industry, with the needs of the of of the community, and how the standardized practices that we use to to enforce and encourage and build those those cultural changes and shifts. And to me, SRE is is really an implementation of what DevOps could be or should be. Similar, like when we talk about some of the software development models like uh, Agile and Lean and Scrum, SRE is a method that we can employ to actually drive forward these changes and do so with measurements so that we can actually graph and use math to show, yes, we have progress. We can prove the site is reliable. And yeah, being in that field where my job is take part of the site and make it so it's reliable and durable. Um, in a way, I feel really at home doing SRE style of work. And I agree with all of that. The to me, SRE is a job title. It is a job description. It is uh, yes, very much. Google has a manual called the SRE Workbook that they copyright 2017, I believe, or the handbook. And there is prescriptions in the capital C correct way to do various tasks to do various measurements 
And Google is one of the few places that can say, no, this is how you measure reliability across, you know, various systems because we've done this at scale. We've really looked at the, the problems of data storage and compute and everything else. We can really say this is the correct way to measure the following things. And DevOps is a culture that a company builds that supports SRE and it supports lots of other other types of work. But the Jack, what you said a minute ago is the implementation. Um, SRE is, is, is very specifically an implementation of DevOps. And there's more to SRE than just DevOps. So yes, it's also a superset. I completely agree with that as well. But it is it is a job. It actually is a job description. It actually is a here is a thing that you're supposed to do, and you actually can walk through and codify a lot of it. Whereas DevOps is very kind of soft and squishy around the edges. Yeah, it's specific methods that you can implement that end up driving some of the cultural shifts of how you can not only work with your operations teams and your development teams but also tie in management and the needs of the business and loop these all together in a tight feedback loop. And especially, as you were saying a minute ago, uh, again, with the the work-from-home culture that has sprung up over the last nine months because of the COVID-19 pandemic, there has been an incredible push on communication styles, communication culture, which is espoused greatly in the the tightly coupled communication loops and the feedback and the way that you're supposed to integrate your teams so that they aren't building silos and they're working together. It is extraordinarily important now, especially with everybody suddenly in work from home, even even companies that weren't built for it or did, intentionally didn't want to do work from home. Now they all have to. So it's, it's an interesting movement in the, in the, in the space. Um, I wanted to touch on something that we mentioned earlier, but didn't really flesh out completely. Ken, what did you mean by you're not exactly employed right now? <laughs> I am, as as you mentioned in the intro, this is the this episode of the international. I have recently switched jobs and have not started at my new job in Amsterdam, the Netherlands, and I am on a six hour time difference from the rest of the crew at the moment sitting in my apartment and I don't start till Thursday at my new position, um, which I'm quite looking forward to as this is a very expensive city to live in without out income. But, and, um, one of the big things that I'm going to be doing is putting a lot of what we have talked about to work. Um, trying to get a, real structured DevOps and working some of that out because it's a company transitioning from startup to big boys and they want, they've made the decision that that's, it's time to get a handle on all this. So I'm intensely curious to see how the U S tech culture, um, which I've only ever really been a part of since I moved back from education, um, many years ago, is different from the European tech culture for private sector. So I, I look forward to your discoveries um, of the things of obviously that you can share, but in terms of yeah. cultural differences, in terms of workplace communications differences, in terms of people's comfort with, um, you know, putting out putting it out there in PRs or in chat, or I know that some of these things are culturally contextually or 
they're culturally relevant and i'm i'm very curious it is an incredibly international team um that i'm going to be working with the company is in the netherlands but is only 40 percent dutch and the rest is from pretty much everywhere i've talked to a canadian um and gentleman from the uk i know we have a couple from eastern europe the owner is a turk uh, it is a very very diverse uh group and it's going to be very interesting um that sounds incredibly fun and luckily english is the common denominator so i am in good shape there um that's work uh it's also very prevalent in dutch society but we do run into some issues here and there with not knowing dutch we're going to i'm going to try to learn we'll see how that goes um but it's i think all four of us were together and we went to a um talk at a conference where they were discussing workplace communication and how it varies in cultures and that the dutch are incredibly direct which i have already discovered um much more so than the than americans so this is going to be another thing i'm prepared to get my feelings hurt <laughs> that they this should prove interesting in that way as well but also being a, a very diverse group uh, it's i i'm probably want not the only one um but i'm very looking forward to the technical challenge as well as the social challenge of moving here and the company is in every cloud you can think of and it's going to be interesting I don't know how much I'm going to share because their base business is securities. So, yeah, we'll and I, I wouldn't want you to <laughs> to share anything on the podcast that would in any way jeopardize um, the the sanctity of the your job. Yeah, yeah, or your, or your company's data or any of those those important things. Uh, yeah, I other, don't know. Uh, I'm probably going to have to have a conversation with uh, somebody about the podcast and what we'll be talking about. We'll see how that goes. Well, I, I desperately want to keep you as a co-host of the show because I think your perspective is, is, has been very good and is, will continue to be very informative and a lot of fun to, to kind of pick up how non-U.S. tech companies handle things. And by the way, Ken, congratulations again. <laughs> yep, congrats. This has been a lifelong dream of my wife and I to expat so this occurring during covid has been interesting but uh we are very looking forward to this and now we just have to find a place to live since we couldn't come house hunt ahead of time because of covid so that's the next big step personally professionally i am very looking forward to getting to work and spending i'm going to be spending a lot of time before i do anything productive learning their environment and they are a multinational company themselves um with offices in a number of other countries and they are in the three major clouds and others and so this is going to be very interesting you know can you really hit on a, a good possible uh episode topic about being sort of an architect level position, you walk into a new client um, and they expect you to be, you know, somehow productive and architect-y, um, you know, day one, week one, 
and you're trying to get a grasp of of how you know how the ether fairies run between place to place and so as that's something that's a little new for me in my career and something that I've been trying to work with and that's something I would look forward to sharing with you I am I'm learning from you the, the how to how to grasp and get a handle on it is is going to be probably one of the biggest challenges and given languages and cultural barriers of you know some some cultures are not going to want to show you the warts where that's actually probably what I'm going to care the most about so it's really going to be quite an interesting challenge to to just get up to speed and tease out of all the different groups how do they really run this stuff? Where is everything? Um, because you can't make improvements till you know what you got. So, and you get to yeah. find out if they have, you know, reasonable documentation or not, uh, onboarding. But a lot of companies, that is not their priority. Their their priority is getting their product working and getting it out the door and making sure the bugs are fixed. And yeah, we'll, we'll have an onboarding document later. We'll have a, an onboarding checklist later. Yeah, we'll figure out how to measure customer experience later. Yeah, and for this one, it's the customers are internal. It's the traders. And internal customers can sometimes be even worse so than external for being demanding because they, they sit down the hall. They know they can come poke you and say, hey, this isn't working. Um, so it's, it's going to be a very new experience. And very challenging, and I am very looking forward to it. So pivoting a little bit in our conversation, um, you've mentioned the future a couple of times in terms of looking forward to what's coming your, coming your way, coming down the, down the pike. Um, we started really doing, I think, the technical side of DevOps work when tools like Puppet became widely available and people, and when I say we, I mean the industry at large, when Puppet really took off as here's how you automate infrastructure, here's how you ensure that your infrastructure doesn't drift, and that became kind of the rallying call to, hey, there's a better way commonly to do this. You don't need a, a bespoke team of engineers to build this thing. Really, a lot of like you can have a two man shop or a one man shop really handle a lot of this, and that was that was a decade, two decades ago. I mean, this, it's been around for a long. I mean, what? Puppet was 2004 now? That's 15, 16 years? I feel like you're making fun of me because I use Beaconfig 2 first. But Puppet existed before that. They, they both yes. came around at the same time. The, the idea of automated The management. idea of configuration management. I was having conversations with other people in my field before I graduated college, like in 2001 or two, somewhere in there, about... Because um, we were all facing some of these similar problems, we have to manage, you know, hundreds or thousands of machines. And how do we create toolage that does configuration management? And so we were struggling with some of these issues uh, back then. Um, and I forget all the top of my head, but CF Engine has traditionally been really the only player in the space until that movement really started and we started getting some really nice tools there. Yeah, and so... What, 15, 16 years after that, that movement really picked up speed, now we have effectively decided that Docker and specifically Kubernetes as an orchestration engine have won a huge share of the, the tool space. What happens next? Where do we go from here? And the fact that 
uh, I think this podcast for the last five years has been espousing a lot of, of site reliability engineering practices as well um, with Docker, with Kubernetes. Yeah, what the interesting thing I'm sort of looking for is what are things that we're sort of discovering now that will end up being industry practice five or ten years from today? I don't know. Maybe, I don't know if it's our bias for what we've collectively been doing very recently, but the observability visibility is is we still grumble and moan about inconsistency, cardinality, all you know, all, all the things that are daily pick making our lives miserable. That I think that's that's going to be the next thing because now as as Docker has taken over, okay, we can we can orchestrate it, but. How's it actually doing? We still struggle with, you know, everybody builds their metrics differently. Everybody logs in a different format. And some of that stuff is, you know, once you've gotten the base, now you start looking out and going, oh, I don't really know what's going on. I can keep it up, but I don't know really how it's doing. Well, now it's, now it shifts into looking at that. And I think, and at scale, that's the, I mean, come on, how much have we, grumbled about some of the some of the tools not working at scale or not or retention and all this stuff that is i think where a big area of improvement improvements will come and if i can do a self-plug i'm doing a, a talk at all things open uh which this year is virtual of course but it's been in raleigh for um uh, the better part of the last decade that actually talks about some of these very topics of how do we take our telemetry and do some sort of, it's hard to say, I, I don't want to use the word schema, but it really kind of is schema work, um, so that we can actually use this data in more and more powerful ways. Because if it's one thing I can just about guarantee, the more we progress in this field, the more everything will be a big data problem. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that the general trend of, uh, you know, However many years ago you really didn't hear about SRE, and now it seems like every every company is wanting to have an SRE team. I, I think the general gravitation towards adding SRE to your tool set or to your team is going to continue, and obviously observability is a big component of that. So I, I agree, Ken and, and uh, Jack, that I think that's what it, where the industry is going towards, and that is more monitoring, more... Uh, SLOs, SLIs, SLAs, those kinds of things, and uh, really supporting the tenets of SRE. So I have an interesting theory. As we do more telemetry work, we end up having to understand and navigate a lot more math. And for me, that's a topic in school that I really enjoyed. I really thought I would do more in my career with, um, but it's really been the last five years where I've discovered that there are niches in this career that do employ a lot of math. Um, and that's something I've enjoyed about working in telemetry. Uh, but today we have, for a modern company, we commonly have an SRE team. And the company also has a different team in sort of the data science field uh, or contractors in the data science field. And these teams don't always, they're usually silos between these teams. There we go. Let's be fully DevOps here. Um, and I think there is a really strong connection between the, the telemetry data that that we gather in visibility and observability and connecting that with 
the folks that have higher data science skills. And one of the things that I've not really seen in practice, but I kind of expect, is to have some more merging of those two teams and those two skill sets. Absolutely. And I would welcome that. I, I think that the move from collection to analysis of the data is a big part of what's going to drive the next couple of years. I don't know if I would say five years out or 10 years out, but I would say definitely one of the big pushes has been, you know, data lakes and data ponds and whatever else to gather all this data. But there haven't been, we haven't had the same groundswell of let's make that data usable and actionable to people outside of the business analysis community. So there's a lot of folks in companies that can take that data and look at marketing or look at long-term trends or look at whatever. But a lot of the data isn't available in accessible ways for doing capacity planning for your server growth or or other pieces that would be helpful in terms of planning and predicting kind of long-term. And I would love to see that become more widespread, to be, become more composable and more standard. Um, I think the industry is largely coalescing towards, say, the Prometheus data export format for metrics, even if we don't agree entirely on which metrics we collect. I would love to see a stronger movement that's more visible and more approachable for the analysis of all all this data. Um, Like PromQL, while it's really cool, isn't the most approachable tool set, we'll say, the the most approachable language. And I would like to further extend the visibility into other things than just operational metrics. And I really think that's what the it was the open telemetry uh, project is trying to do. I mean they they have standardized on a format that looks very uh, Prometheus like. And, and in fact, I think Prometheus has actually adopt, adopted their upstream standards for their own metric definitions. Uh, and I think that will help uh, grow grow the tool sets around those Prometheus style metrics. So that yeah, you can run Prometheus, but then also at the same time, you don't necessarily have to use PromQL or uh, Prometheus itself to analyze some of that data. You could also use some other tool sets that can ingest the same metrics and uh, do some different analysis against it. Well, I guess part there of there are several communities in that space now, and of course, all of their community names start with the word "open." Um, are any of them actually open? <laughs> and there's a lot of of uh, focus around tracing data as well. And you talk about um, high cardinality schemaless, unstructured, you know, crazy data, um, tracing data is, is <laughs> where it's at. Um, but yeah, that's, that's a good episode topic for us to explore at some point. Well, one of the things, um, coming back to what Ken said a minute ago about his company being multi-cloud, all the cloud, how do you then get your data lake in Google and your data lake in Azure and your data lake in IBM and your data lake in Oracle and your data lake in wherever and compare your data sets? I don't think you can right now. I don't think there are tools that you can say apply to all of the above, which means that there's a whole lot of burden placed on an analyst somewhere to go through and figure out how to normalize and how to, you know, make it, make it commonly sliceable. And I want to see that kind of transformation that we've seen in the metric space, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, really Nagios was where it was at in terms of monitoring and you couldn't really compare it against any other monitoring system. And it was just sort of, that's where you are. And now you have all kinds of different providers doing all kinds of different things, but you can say, 
hey, I have one Prometheus scrape endpoint that everybody's collecting from, and I can see how that data lands in different places, and I can compare. And if I have a scrape endpoint in Google and a scrape endpoint in IBM on the same code base, I can trust that my code is reporting the same thing out to me. But on the the long-term analytics, we don't have that yet, and that's what I really want. So maybe as Ken digs into multi-cloud, he can he can report back on the the status of those tools. I think having having that data portability would be fantastic for metrics because most of the cloud providers like to lock up their own data on or not their own, but what they show you about your your you know your instances. It goes into their stream to their tools, and you can't get it out. And it's five cents per query. Yeah. Which is really cheap when you have 100 instances, but it grows. The other thing that I'm kind of curious about in the long term, we have we have all of this work that's been done on deploying stateless applications and stateless things and doing red, red blue, green, black, whatever deployments and having the ability to understand and control this whole beautiful wonderland of state, stateless um, artifacts and programs and all these things. There's a lot of really interesting solutions in stateful land, in the in the places where you need to actually store and move state about, and I want to see changes there. I think I think there's enough that is ripe for not consolidation, but for improvement. You and, mean you want to see the pendulum swing in the other direction? Well, I I want to find something that is honestly better and easier to run than Cassandra that doesn't have some of the burdens of Elasticsearch that, you know, we have, we have tools that do state, but they're all rather focused on one particular piece of it. And I don't need just a a key value store that's replicated. I don't need just a a JSON document store. I I'm looking for better, more holistic, um, stateful solutions to problems. Does that make sense? I think so. Um, something that we've spent too much time in because we deal with telemetry and we have to store the state, um, usually in specialized formats. Um, but it's the fact that uh, modern clouds have basically offloaded um, our need for databases or, or common uh, JSON document stores um, into cloud services that we can just, you know, use by API. Um, and those are to some degree limiting. Um, and with our world that's becoming more and more data focused and the fact that we have stateful sets in Kubernetes that don't suck anymore. Um, yeah, I'd be really interested in seeing some more, some more focus in that area of, of the things that we can do with having local state. I guess in part, I'm reminded of tools that have fallen out of favor, like DRBD that were network replication of just block devices. And anything you put on a block device, you could replicate. And it didn't matter that it was a particular kind of data store or was a particular kind of tool. It just gave you replication. And that's what I want more of. You reminded me of the Andrew file system. Had Everybody just groaned. <laughs> Had <Yeah>. to go there. <laughs> we would like to thank 42 Lines for sponsoring this episode. 42 Lines is a DevOps consulting firm specializing in observability, cloud migrations, service reliability engineering, cost control, security practices, and team mentoring. 
Jumpstart your SRE journey today with the experts at 42lines.net. Please take the time to rate the show in Overcast, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast directory. It is the best way for new listeners to find us. Additionally, we welcome feedback about shows we've recorded or topics you'd like us to cover. Leave us a comment on the website at operations.fm or send us your thoughts on email, feedback at operations.fm. And that wraps it up for this 100th episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Ken Mink. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. Thanks, and good night. Dude, episode 100! Yay!